Hello, folks, and welcome to Wild Angel, the films of Roger Corman, a podcast dedicated to the work of the legendary filmmaker. In each episode, we will take an in-depth look at seminal titles from Roger Corman's filmography. I'm your host, Manuel Canary, film fan and Roger Corman aficionado. On today's episode, we are going to take a look back at Attack of the Crab Monsters from 1957, A Bucket of Blood from 1959, and a Corman-produced Dementia 13 from 1963. The poet, the figure model who loves to show it. You suppose he could be physically attracted to her? No, man, he ain't the type. He don't get enough vitamin E. All these are beat. All these you'll meet in a bucket of blood. Let us make the scene. Crazy. Enjoy yourself, (laughs) where the hilarious enjoy the horrifying in a bucket of blood. No, you're going to shoot me. Don't shoot. Come to the land of living dreams. A Bucket of Blood from 1959 was Roger Corman's initial foray into the horror comedy subgenre. It was the first of a film trifecta which also included Little Shop of Horrors and Creature from the Haunted Sea. It's the morbid story of Walter Paisley, the clumsy, insecure busboy at a popular beat-knit coffeehouse, who becomes an unexpected phenomenon as a sculptor after mistakenly killing his landlady's cat, covering it up with clay, and passing it off as an artistic creation. But, in order to retain his popularity and to create more works of art, Walter must keep finding subjects, even if it means murder. The idea for the film came to Corman when, during a screening of one of his horror movies, he suddenly recognized the correlation between fear and humor. The audience screamed and then promptly laughed at their own reaction to a typical scare setup. Corman realized that laughs and scares on film worked in the same fashion, with a build-up and a climax. This prompted his interest in trying to merge both horror and comedy into one piece of filmmaking. However, Roger Corman was apprehensive about trying his hand at comedy, mostly due to his lack of experience in the genre. Writer Charles Griffith, with whom Corman worked with on multiple occasions, took the reins and convinced the director that with the minimal budget of just $50,000 given to him by American International Pictures, he had nothing to lose, even if the film was not a success. Griffith and Corman decided to set the story smack dab in the middle of the popular beatnik culture of the time. The two men created an outline of the story in one evening as they hopped from one beat house to another on the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. They ended their evening late at an establishment where their acquaintance, the eventual actress Sally Kellerman, worked as a server. Corman later said she actually helped them both in fashioning the climax of the film. Under the working title, The Living Dead, filming took place over five days in May of 1959 on leftover sets from an AIP teen flick called Diary of a High School Bride. Dick Miller was cast as the lead in the film, Walter Paisley. A motley crew from the Corman acting repertoire, including Barbara Morris, Anthony Carbone, John Brinkley, and Myrtle Vale, filled other roles. 
Also, future game show mainstay Bert Convy makes an appearance as an undercover cop who meets his unfortunate demise. The film was eventually released in October of 1959. The marketing played up the comedic angle of the film, and the movie brought Corman some very good notices in addition to a healthy showing at the box office. I saw Bucket of Blood after Little Shop, even though it chronologically came out before. If we're splitting hairs, Little Shop would classify as my personal favorite, but Bucket follows in a tight second position. And even though both films share a similar template as far as storyline is concerned, they also vary in enough ways to facilitate their own personal identity. Both feature meek lead characters who gain popularity in macabre ways. Little Shop is more screwball and endearing, and the character of Seymour never succumbs to being purposely murderous. While in Bucket of Blood, where the tone is darker and more pointed, Walter does just that. In comparing the two films further, a bucket of blood is more layered and slightly more sophisticated, but both takes work and help to further give each piece its unique qualities, instead of simply being replicas of one another. Dick Miller's portrayal of Walter Paisley has become legendary in the history of cult movies. It's his show all the way, and he's nothing short of terrific. His performance is an important part of its success. The character of Walter is an interesting one. As written and performed, He's multi-layered and realistically flawed. He really only elicits sympathy early on in the film, but as his morals get compromised and his actions turn deadly, he becomes a reluctant villain, but a villain nonetheless. This character arc is unique and ballsy for a movie of this kind, and it works very well. Charles Griffith's script also deserves credit for these kinds of inspired executions, and also for the razor-sharp humor. The bulk of the movie takes place at a beatnik coffee house called The Yellow Door, which gives Griffith reign to poke fun at the artsy stereotypes of the time. The dialogue between the characters, particularly the hip jargon between Art and Oscar, two stone poser patrons of the coffee house, is funny and snappy, needling the popular slang of the time. While the satirizing of the beatnik art scene is never really mean-spirited, its bohemian ideals are definitely taken to town. In addition to Miller's winning portrayal, Anthony Carbone as Leonard, the limping owner of the Yellow Door, who happens to figure out Walter's goings-on, is very entertaining. Barbara Morris, an actress who was mostly cast in supporting roles, is very good as Carla, a good-natured coffeehouse waitress who becomes the object of Walter's affection. She's quite natural on screen, and though she was never really given bigger parts to fully showcase her talents, she was always extremely engaging as she is here. Also of note is a fun turn by Julian Burton as the in-house beat poet who recites his bewildering prose with gusto and good humor. Burton actually wrote his own poems to recite in the film and, if you listen to them carefully, they are ripe with ridiculous and very humorous metaphors. Visually, the film might be simple, but Corman manages to use his camera in interesting ways. You'd think that with such a small budget and short shooting schedule, he'd simply set up shots, then point and shoot. But instead, he chooses to compose scenes with a certain kind of flair. One good example is the opening sequence. As the titles appear on the screen, the viewer follows Walter as he busses tables while a poet performs on a small stage. The camera glides through the Yellow Door Cafe, establishing the film's environment for the viewer in a brief but effective way. Another example is a scene in which Walter hides the body of the undercover cop he has killed in the ceiling of his kitchen as he tries to get rid of his nosy landlady. 
In the background, the victim's arm drops into view as blood begins to rush out onto the kitchen floor. It's both funny and gruesome, in the vein of a morbid Hitchcock gag. Corman's staging of it is what makes it work so well. And lastly, he keeps the film's pace clipped and makes every moment of his tight 66-minute running time as enjoyable as possible. Dick Miller was proud of many aspects of the film, but he believes that it suffered some because of the budgetary restraints. In some respect, his point is valid. The statues Walter creates, which are of course supposed to be dead bodies covered in clay, don't look particularly believable. But perhaps due to the comedic tone of the film and or the fact that the rest of the components are so strong, it doesn't mar the movie for me at all. Miller took the most issue with the final moments of the film. Walter, racked with guilt and on the verge of being caught for his crimes by the cops, decides to cover himself with clay and to hang himself. Well, there was not enough time during the filming to cover Miller in plaster, so a smattering of gray makeup was applied to his face instead. And that was that. But if the audience was not aware of this, they might think, as I did on my first viewing of the film, that Walter tried to plaster himself in vain and, unable to go through with it, decided to commit suicide by hanging himself instead. Bucket of Blood is essential viewing, and Little Shop of Horrors is its perfect companion. I personally found the third black comedy in the series, Creature from the Haunted Sea, to be inferior to its two predecessors. Save for some funny bits of dialogue, it's a clumsy and sloppy affair, lacking the wit and wickedness that Bucket and Little Shop offered in spades. Still, with two great works out of three valiant efforts, proved that Corman's experimental comedy phase was more successful than anyone anticipated. The craft and execution of Bucket of Blood still holds up, and Walter Paisley has gone on to become a much-beloved cult movie figure. So much so, in fact, that Dick Miller went on to play characters named Walter Paisley, an obvious in-joke for genre fans, in four succeeding movies made by Corman devotees. Hollywood Boulevard and The Howling, directed by Joe Dante, Twilight Zone the Movie, directed by John Landis, and Chopping Mall, directed by Jim Wynorski. With Bucket of Blood, Corman and crew set the bar high and pioneered the convergence of two wildly different styles. So, when a jet black comedy comes along, one that spooks you while making you laugh out loud, well, you have a Bucket of Blood to thank for that. You two will be mesmerized by a world that cannot be, but is. The mystery of the enigmatic leads to a strange rendezvous. An attempted escape. A meeting with terror. So far, we have explored Roger Corman's directorial works, but with Dementia 13 from 1963, we take a look at his early years as a producer. Dementia 13 is the eerie story of an eccentric Irish family who meets every year at Halloran Castle in Ireland to mourn the death of the youngest family member, Kathleen. But people begin to disappear as a mysterious axe murderer begins to re-already disturbed family. 
These days, Roger Corman is mostly known as a producer of horror and sci-fi camp, but even in the years before he gave up directing, he found himself on the producing side of the business, already giving other up-and-coming filmmakers a shot at making their feature film debuts. One of these talents was a young UCLA graduate by the name of Francis Ford Coppola. Corman had hired Coppola in the early 60s to work on a script for a film which came to be known as Battle Beyond the Sun. Soon after, Corman headed to Liverpool, England to shoot a new film titled The Young Racers and hired Coppola as a sound engineer on the picture. Unsurprisingly, Corman came in under budget upon completing The Young Racers and with $22,000 left over, he offered Coppola the money to direct his own film in nearby Ireland. Wanting to capitalize on the success of the game-changing hit Psycho, Corman instructed the young filmmaker to fashion a horror thriller with a similar feel to Hitchcock's masterpiece. Coppola thought up a sequence which he dictated to Corman. A man shows up at a pond late at night and dives into it with five dolls attached on a rope. While underwater, he comes upon the body of a young dead girl, and as he comes up for air from the shock, he is axed to death by a mysterious assailant. Based on that recount of the scene alone, Corman was sold on the idea, with the caveat that he changed the male victim to a female. Coppola quickly went to work on creating a story around the one scene. He hauled himself up in a room, completing the screenplay in three days and three nights. In order to double his budget, Coppola cleverly managed to sell the British distribution rights of the film to English producer Raymond Strauss for an additional $20,000. Strauss put the money up front before the film began shooting, suspecting a great potential in the thriller aspects of the film, as well as the idea of an axe murderer as a villain. Armed with a small crew of nine, Coppola shot the film over nine days at Ardmore Studios, as well as on the grounds of Howth Castle, both located in Dublin, Ireland. Three cast members from The Young Racers were conveniently cast in this film, Patrick McGee, William Campbell, and Luanna Anders. Other American actors, including Mary Mitchell and Bart Patton, who were friends of Coppola, had paid their own way to Ireland in order to appear in the film. And a few local Irish actors, including Ethne Dunn, as the mentally unstable matriarch of the Halloran family, were cast from the local Abbey Theatre Company. Upon his return to America... Coppola screened a rough cut of the movie for Roger Corman, who was quite displeased with the final product. He demanded changes, which included more violence and a longer running time. Coppola shot additional footage at Griffith Park in Los Angeles, standing in as the Irish castle grounds, and Corman's stalwart Jack Hill was eventually brought in to stage and shoot an additional murder scene involving a fox poacher on the Halloran property. Additionally, Corman found certain scenes to be confusing, and had Coppola add voiceovers which would aid in explaining the plot developments. Lastly, he just found the running time to be too brief, so he brought in Monty Hellman to direct a prologue to be added, inspired by William Castle's gimmick film introductions. Featuring a quote-unquote psychiatrist, the audience was subjected to something called a D-13 test in which questions were asked in order to decipher which viewers in the theater were mentally fit to withstand seeing the picture. The silly introduction was eventually dropped from most DVDs and video releases of the film. Of note, the film was originally titled Dementia, but since the movie with that same title already existed, the number 13 was added to differentiate the two. 
The film was eventually released on a double bill with the Corman-directed X the Man with the X-Ray Eyes. It garnered mixed reviews and eventually faded the way of other low-budget public domain horror. It's now mostly just remembered as Francis Ford Coppola's first feature film. And not much else. But I happen to believe there's much more to this little and perfect gem. As I mentioned in our first episode, I owned Dementia 13 as part of a low-quality double-feature video which also included The Terror. I watched both of these films often in my teens and enjoyed each of them in my newfound love for campy horror. Now there are two schools of thoughts on Dementia 13. One which claims it to be nothing memorable, showing no indication of Francis Ford Coppola's directorial talents. And another who finds a lot to admire within a somewhat flawed execution. I proudly belong to the latter. Francis Ford Coppola eventually became an icon of modern cinema due to his captivating, brilliant work on classics like The Godfather and Apocalypse Now, among others. And while Dementia 13 is a super cheap and rushed affair, I really believe there are shades of a real cinematic auteur at work on display. It's not a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, but I think its detractors have treated the film somewhat unfairly. Luckily, there are a good number of admirers like myself willing to give the film its due. Coppola's screenplay has its moments of clunky and confusing passages, and the final reveal of the killer's identity is not particularly memorable, but the base of the idea is gripping enough to keep the viewer involved for the duration of its brief running time. What raises the film's worth and makes it stand apart from similar fare is the deft touches of grit and the dark, moody atmosphere Coppola creates with his camera. The consistent sense of foreboding makes the proceedings effective, and yes, sometimes even scary. Genuinely scary. It could be said that it's a case of style over substance, but when the style works this well on such a low budget, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Take the scene which Coppola dictated to Corman, where Luana Anders' scheming character Louise is killed at the hands of the axe murderer. It's a harrowing moment taking place by dark and dirty pond, and one which elicits genuine shock. It's brutal and suspenseful. Having a major character killed off early in the film is a cue taken straight out of Psycho, but the shock is not in the timing of the character's demise, but rather in the startling execution of it. This scene is the highlight of the movie, and though other moments don't pack the same wallop, there's enough eeriness to go around. The cast assembled for the film does a fine job, with some enjoyable turns by the previously mentioned Luana Anders as the scheming, ill-fated gold digger Louise, and Patrick McGee as the irritable and enjoyably campy family doctor who investigates the proceedings. Composer Ronald Stein once again betrays the budget constraints and contributes an awesome musical score worthy of any major big-budget movie. With a driving harpsichord and thundering bass drops, the music is creepy as hell and complements the tone of the film perfectly. Much of the photography is dark and drab, perhaps mostly due to the lack of money. In most cases, this would hinder a film, but cinematographer Charles Hannawalt makes it work to his advantage, and given the genre, it actually enhances the overall somber feel of the movie. Dementia 13 may not be free of flaws, and it goes without saying that it can't hold a candle to masterworks like Psycho or even Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, but it does have its own merits as a morbid thriller and is a cut above its contemporary cheapies. In fact, a popular death metal band even took its name from the title of this movie. The film is often mentioned as a footnote in Francis Ford Coppola's illustrious directorial career, 
but in my opinion, that would be a criminal shortchanging. There are instances here which show a promise of what's to come, and Coppola himself even was quoted as saying that he was proud of the movie, and that it has some of the nicest visuals he has ever composed on film. I agree with him. It's more than a solid start, and one which deserves more praise than criticism. among the terrors of the mighty Pacific, daring skin divers brave undersea perils that stagger the imagination. Here are monsters with razor-sharp claws that hand grenades and dynamite cannot stop. Nor searing fire and flame, nor tons of crushing rocks, as mankind faces its last desperate chance. Attack of the Crab Monsters was one of the nine movies Roger Corman directed in 1957. As was typical of the era, low-budget film companies such as Poverty Road distributors like Allied Artists would come up with tantalizing titles and exciting plot ideas in order to sell their movies to theater chains and drive-ins. And that was before even having the films written or filmed. Once deals were made, the studios would assign filmmakers the task of putting film to title and it was Roger Corman's job to do so for Attack of the Crab Monsters. He asked his friend and screenwriter Charles Griffith to write a script which would contain non-stop suspense and as much action as possible. Griffith shared an amusing anecdote in which, upon completion of his first draft, Corman suggested some changes and to tighten the script up a bit. Griffith made only minor adjustments and rewrote it adjusting the page margin, giving the script a lower page count and this gave Corman the illusion that the script had been edited more than it actually had. The plot follows a group of scientists stranded on an island inhabited by mutated crab creatures who wreak havoc while aided by the brain functions of their human victims. The film's budget was a scant $70,000, and most of it was filmed in Southern California at the Leo Carrillo State Beach and Bronson Caves in Griffith Park two very cinematic locations often used by the director. The cast consisted of future TV mainstays Russell Johnson, Pamela Duncan, and Ed Nelson, as well as Corman regulars Mel Wells and Beach Dickerson. Before initial filming, $25,000 of the film's budget was said to be allocated to special effects alone. That amount was most likely exaggerated, as one can easily deduce while watching the finished product. To put it plainly, the crab monster itself is pretty ridiculous. Made with a combination of paper mache or fiberglass, depending on which cast member you ask, piano wire, and styrofoam. It was clumsy to operate and needed to be maneuvered by people from the inside. Both Ed Nelson and Beach Dickerson were assigned a task of not only playing their parts in the film, but to also operate the crab itself. Inspired and impressed by the newest Jacques Cousteau film he had just seen, Screenwriter Charles Griffith offered Corman his services to direct the underwater footage for just $100. The director agreed, and Griffith took a small crew to a water park, marine land of the Pacific, and filmed scenes in a tank at the park, which contained all kinds of fish, including sharks. 
Though she was assured she'd be safe, Pamela Duncan later said she was extremely uncomfortable with the idea of being around sharks, and that she was uneasy with her heavy scuba equipment, which was designed to be worn by a male. During these underwater scenes, they also had to keep weighing down the monster prop because it was not heavy enough to sink under the water. The crew had to load it down with weights, rocks, and even other crew members in order to make it stay submerged. Much like most Corman movies of the time, Attack of the Crab Monsters had a very short running time, a brief 62 minutes, which led to the usual padding to elongate the film's length for television airings. In some markets, a crab attack scene from later in the film was also shown in a pre-title sequence. In others, a text scrawl was added as a prologue, which was followed by various disaster stock footage and some doomsday narration. The film was released as a double feature with another Corman film, Not of This Earth. It quickly became his most profitable movie to date, capitalizing on the giant sci-fi monster craze sweeping the nation in the latter part of the 1950s. I enjoy Attack of the Crab Monsters with the intent in which it was made. It's undeniably a low-rent affair, but it's a film which takes itself surprisingly quite seriously. Once one gets past the cheap outer shell of the film, it's interesting to notice that there's a thought-provoking core nestled between the monster movie cliches. There's something very sinister about the idea of mutated creatures who operate with the brains of humans. And not just any humans. These are scientists. It's generous to say that the monsters look rough around the edges at best, but that's what we love about these type of movies from the 50s. Even the effects of the bigger budget films of the time can seem dated when viewed by modern audiences. For its allotted budget, Corman and company do the best they can with what they have, and as cheesy as the crab monsters end up looking, I kind of wouldn't want it any other way. Charles Griffith took Corman's request to have as much suspense as possible written into the script to heart. There's something interesting or foreboding going on in every scene. It might help that the film is short in length, but even then, it's never dull. And I appreciate Griffith's willingness to try to dig a little deeper with the story, even if the initial subject matter and genre style of the film is simple and exploitive. As mentioned earlier, Corman recycles locations for his films often, but he has a keen eye for making them work to great effect. The Southern California beaches and Griffith Park locales stand in very well as an island in distress. The cast is competent and appealing enough. Of note, Russell Johnson eventually gained popularity as another island castaway, this time on television. He played the professor on the classic 1960s sitcom Gilligan's Island. Mel Wells is fun to watch as a French botanist, and in later years claimed that the movie was one of the worst ever made, but that it found some retribution because of its title, with comedians poking fun at it and helping it to become a pop culture reference. Also, interestingly enough, a poet named Lawrence Rabb wrote a sonnet titled Attack of the Crab Monsters, which recounts the basic events of the film. Here are the last two stanzas. My voice. I'm not used to all these legs, these claws, these feelers. It's the old story, predictable as fallout, the rearrangement of molecules. And everyone is surprised, and no one understands, why each man tries to kill the thing he loves when the change comes over him. So now you know what I never found the time to say. Sweetheart, put down your flamethrower. You know I always loved you.
Attack of the Crab Monsters is pure 1950s drive-in fun. It's a picture that manages to contain some darker, unexpected themes, but it still manages to be a quick, enjoyable monster movie. There's a lot of nostalgia at play here, but this is classic early Roger Corman at its fractured best. And sometimes, that's all you need. This wraps up this installment of Wild Angel, the films of Roger Corman. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Also, please check out the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash wildangelrogercorman and hit that like button. Make sure to tune in next time when we'll take a look at some other classic Corman work. Until then, I'm your host, Manuel Canary, reminding you to keep your plants fed and to keep your buckets full of blood.